The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. Welcome to the podcast. Our expert today that I have the privilege of talking to is Dr. Jim Persinger, and he's going to talk to us about how teachers can feel better prepared and more comfortable talking about and dealing with the crises involving school violence. And I hope that teachers will feel more comfortable and take away from this some knowledge that they can use maybe even tomorrow in their classroom. Terrific. I, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, folks that know me and especially my role in teacher ed, I know that this is near and dear to my heart and probably the thing I'm most passionate about. We know that every year in virtually every classroom, you have children from kindergarten you know, through 12th grade. Percentage of them have experienced some event that has caused some pretty severe stress, has put them in a crisis state. And to my experience in this, I have virtually never seen a district handle things the way that we've known for a couple decades they should be handled. And so I want to talk about some of those pitfalls and mostly focus on the teacher's role in helping return to a steady state and helping kids get back to baseline where they were before a stressful event happened. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to hearing about this. We've had several episodes on the topic of school safety. We've looked at the data and we've grieved of events that have happened recently in our schools where teachers and students have been killed. We want to focus more on what does that teacher need to do in the classroom with their kids? Maybe when they've heard about an event in the news or they have an individual student who's experienced trauma, and it's a more personal situation in their room. I think that we can talk about very tangible things, like a lot of teachers, where you you sign up to go to a conference or workshop, and they talk about you know all these takeaways and what they're going to focus on. And when you're done, you go, really? I'm waiting to know, what will I do different on Monday? And they never got to it. That is so true. And I always hated those things. So I really want to focus on some very tangible things with the time we have. And I guess I'd like to start by talking about the nature of crises, because here's the problem I commonly see. When people have asked me you know, for help, in, and I'll talk about some of those scenarios shortly, but when schools have asked me for help to deal with crises or to do training so they can be ready for them, everybody starts focusing on school shootings, for instance, or the tornado wipes out half the town. And it's like, you know, we'll, we'll get there, but frankly, people kind of miss the mark in understanding how often children are really in what's called a crisis state and the teachers don't recognize it. It does not take a school shooting for students to find themselves in deep distress that has, has traumatizing potential. So when we talk about the nature of crises, what we're really saying is a crisis is a situation, an experience, an event that has happened in in the student's life that has overwhelmed them. It has put them in pain emotionally, physically, or it's given them a perception. And perception is key to this. They perceive that this is a really terrible situation. When I say overwhelmed, 
what I really mean is it has created problems and they don't know how to solve them. And this is central to understanding crises because here we are as middle-aged and older teachers who have experience and developed a lot of coping skills. And so we have to appreciate it's the student's experience in dealing with a tough situation that makes or breaks whether they're in crisis or not. So you imagine the coping repertoire, if you will, of an, of an eight-year-old whose parents are chronically fighting or are who in the midst of divorce, where the student saw their dog hit by a car and die. We can cope with this as adults in a way that does not lead to a crisis for us. And it tends to make us not recognize when youth are in crisis. And I, I think the best exemplar of that is the frequency with which schools say, we really want some trainings here, so we're ready for the next crisis. And they want to know about school shootings. And it's like, you got to keep your eye on the ball here. Every teacher in every classroom, almost every year has one or more students in crisis. You just don't realize it. You have to see things from the student's perspective. The main point of that is adults usually under-respond because they don't see the problem. That is so true. And if we act on those more individual incidents, we may see a decrease in the newsworthy big events. What do you think? Yeah. And I want to give you a couple examples of that. And here's where I think, for instance, the New York Times has gotten pretty good at recognizing crisis situations because it's fairly common that I'm reading the news in the morning, often New York Times, and they will talk about a 19-year-old influencer or YouTube star that has a bunch of, you know, a million 12-year-old fans or somebody I'd never heard of, you know, as, a, as an older person, has died. It's not uncommon they have died uh, by suicide or, you know, in a car accident, but it's, it's tragic in, in any case. And people don't appreciate that there's a lot of variables that go into play that say, you know, this, the fact that we don't recognize that this is a problem doesn't mean that we don't have students deeply affected. And so I appreciate some news outlets recognizing that uh, is a serious service needed to make sure adults know that their children might be really distraught over somebody you've never heard of. And I had trouble wrapping my mind around this when I was a younger psychologist. I still remember the day um, by habit I'd set out on my porch, I'd read the Kansas City Star every morning and I opened it up one day and the front page is a blaring headline, Princess Diana died. And the main story was really that there are crisis counselors standing by. There's going to be three different candlelight vigils. We're going to have, uh, you know, a, 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 a big thing in the town square. This is Manhattan, Kansas at the time. And my reaction when, I, when I'm reading this, I was pretty incredulous. Like, you tell me that there's people in Manhattan, Kansas, the new Princess Diana. And I came to appreciate, as you learn about the crisis literature, that there is an emotional connection we build to people that we don't even know. But it's perception of closeness and pain. that This was driven home to me when, as I thought about this. And I remembered my reaction when I was in Catholic schools in the early 80s and the Pope was shot. Can you imagine what the reaction was when the teacher walked in, you know, a teacher I care about walks in 
hysterical and tells us the Pope's been shot. It, it, it was chaos and we had trouble sleeping. And I came to appreciate later, like, I didn't know the Pope, but you feel a, a connection, you know, in those situations. But that's an example of what we need to do in our shift in perception. We have to see things through the eyes of our students and say, if something happened where they're perceiving pain and where it's made them feel helpless because they've never felt grief before, they've never felt a loss before, for instance. And then that's the case, there's a way to kind of get them back on track. The final element in, in understanding nature of crisis besides pain and powerlessness is that typically crises come on pretty suddenly. So for instance, a teacher dying in a car accident over a weekend is a dramatic, dramatic change in a student's life. A teacher who's dying of cancer slowly over a period of a year is still difficult, but you have a year to adjust and talk about it and make all sorts of changes cognitively and how you process things and socially and, and so on that make that less likely to cause a full-blown situation that affects you for years. So that in a nutshell is the nature of, of crises. And when teachers recognize that, they start seeing that every year their students struggling with something and there's little what I'll call nudges that they can do to get things back on track. And that's where we'll spend most of our time uh, talking about. Nudges. Uh, okay. That's central to knowing how we proceed with these things because when people think of crises and such, everybody, what, what I mean by that is school administration, policy leaders, and so on, they all respond by saying uh, crisis counselors are standing by, the school counselors are standing by, the social workers are here, the school psychologists will help you. This implies the crisis response is, is specialized and in the realm of mental health professionals. I am here to tell you, every protocol that has ever been invented that first responders are trained in were created by peers or peers. They were, it was created by um, paramedics to help paramedics who saw something awful. It was polished by firefighters who are trained to help firefighters and police who help police. People we are close to and have a good relationship with and understand our culture are the people who get us through most of these things. We can call these things psychological interventions. They don't take a psychologist. All but two specialized techniques, which are some of the least techniques you need to offer a nudge, um, are well done by teachers with minor training. Wow, that is exciting in thinking that there's a few things I can specifically do that can make a difference. Yeah. I had a student in my classroom just this semester who came to school with stitches on his cheek and he'd been bitten by his dog, his own family dog. And the dog then was sent to the pound and had to be euthanized. So I know, even though he's a middle school student, that he's dealing with, one, the injury to his own face, two, the loss of his dog, but somewhere in there, he's probably also dealing with the guilt related to the action between him and his dog causing this. I, as a teacher, have no idea what I can do to help this child. I feel for him, but I don't know what to do. 
And some of this goes back to the nature of crises, the fact that a teacher fortunately recognizes this. But then the problem becomes that because we don't know what to do or to say, the typical thing that happens is that we say nothing at all. I'll give you the most common example that I really struggle to, to talk about without getting emotional because I see this multiple times a year in, in Kansas schools, a student death by suicide. If you look at how the majority of districts respond to this, even some of the wealthiest districts that have large numbers of mental health folks and so on, the typical way they handle a situation like that is to push out something that says, you know, like a, a social media thing and a note to, you know, that goes in the, the student portal for parents to check on that says, you may be aware that something happened if you believe your child is disturbed by this, you can call the office and they can talk to a counselor. What that means is that the school essentially, for a lot of reasons, including ongoing stigma, that we don't talk about things that make people uncomfortable. We essentially pretend like nothing happened. Think about how invalidating that is. When you have a student struggling with something like this, the situation you just described, or they're aware, even if they didn't know the person, they're aware that somebody died by suicide. And every message we send them is we don't talk about this. What we are telling students who are struggling in those situations is you are on your own to figure this out. And when you think about a crisis state, you are sending that message to somebody who's feeling kind of helpless right now. And it almost has you doubling down on it when you won't discuss it. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, I can. I am so sorry. I can't imagine how you're feeling right now. I'm here for you. Something as simple as saying "men" is extraordinarily healing. Be, just because you're validating the way they're feeling now, and you are telling them what's going on right now is awful, and your reaction to it's normal. There's tremendous healing power to hear. I'm not crazy. The way I'm feeling is legitimate and somebody cares enough to have noticed. This sounds so simple, but most schools don't systematically push that message out and say it's okay to talk about this and bring it up and just say to students, I appreciate you might be dealing with some difficult things now. I'm here to help in whatever way. And sometimes the way is just an arm around them. Sometimes it's letting them bent. And you're just non-judgmentally there to listen. That's usually all they need, but just that validation. So we were talking about the you know, perceptions that crisis is based on what the student perceives to be trauma. And my example of the student who'd been bitten, right? It was obvious to me that something was wrong. So I should say something, but sometimes we don't know what's going on with the student. And I'm just curious what advice you might have when the student isn't making it clear that they need help. You know, there, there's a problem solving process. The best term for that process is psychological first day. There's lots of models out there. It's a pretty basic process. It's a couple hour sort of training. All teachers in Emporia State get uh, a version of that as well as kind of a deep dive into, into this topic. 
so they know how to kind of handle it. The process is really quite simple in that it entails the teacher connecting with the student, like getting down at their level if they're, you know, a, a little one, having a, a quiet conversation with them. When you see them off on their own and they're str clearly struggling with something, and maybe we don't even know what they're struggling with, or maybe we know something pretty serious happened um, in the school community and we're, we're thinking it might have affected them. We don't need to know what they're struggling with. We just need to recognize that a student has, their behavior's different. This is why teachers are on the front lines of this. We are some of the first and most powerful people in helping change the course of what happens next. And the process starts with us sitting down with the student or, you know, just approaching them and saying, I know you've been struggling and maybe you're labeling two or three examples of why you, of what you've noticed. That, for instance, that you've always been a, a great energetic student and such a joy in class and one, and a leader. And you haven't been here a lot in the last two weeks and you used to be playing kickball with your friends and you're here by yourself. Is there something that I can help with? And that's simply, that's really just the phrase, can I help? And you let the student come to you and you can't screw this part up. And this is the thing that teachers have to understand. The way you screw this up is to not respond. Is to, is to struggle with worrying about, we might say the wrong thing, and so we don't say anything at all. You can't screw this part up. You connect emotionally with the student and say, essentially, I care. Can I help? Just being with them, listening to them, carving out a moment, a connection with them, and saying, I'm a little worried about you. Can I help? Would you like to talk? I'm here, and then it, the ball's in their court. Most students are relieved that somebody has noticed, and, you, and you'll feel that, and then you're off and running. And they'll let you have it, which the typical term for it is they'll tell their story. And that's where the next part of the process is just you say, you know, would you like to tell me what, what you've experienced? Because we can't assume what they're struggling with. If that makes sense. We often perceive, for instance, in the instance of the student who's come in under these circumstances and they've been bitten by the pet and now the pet's caught and where we can interpret, wow, they're dealing with the pain of this. They probably feel guilty that, that it's their fault and, and all this. We can keep that in the back of our minds, but we need to have the student tell us their story because it's a surprising amount of time that we don't know where they're coming from. Maybe the student's struggle is they're terrified of dogs and they have to walk four blocks to school. And every time they hear a dog in the yard, they're afraid it's going to jump out, jump out and attack them. So they're afraid to come to school. We need the student to tell us their perception. And literally just asking, would you like to tell me your story about how this has affected you? And they describe the event. They ex describe their experience. They describe its effects. Like, I can't stop crying. I'm afraid to come to school. I haven't been eating. And we could just kind of wait to hear the story and the effects. And we kind of go from there at that point, just giving them some, some nudges to help them get back on track. And we'll talk about those nudges here in, in a little bit.
That sounds great. This psychological first aid that teachers are trained in, is that teaching them how to work with the student in their classroom that's come in with experiencing a crisis? It's a training that helps people understand how to connect to a person who seems to be struggling and how to problem solve with them in a productive way that the research says is tremendously healing and that meets a majority and there's different figures thrown out there. But uh, what I have heard from the pioneers in the 80s who created these processes, Jeffrey Mitchell and George Everly at Johns Hopkins, what they've consistently said is 80% of needs and the aftermath of a crisis event, terrible events, 80% of it is met by not mental health professionals, by people who have a connection to the folks in crisis, for instance, the teacher, um, and them connecting in these problem-solving processes, these natural interactions where you say, I'm here for you, I'm worried about you, you seem to be struggling, can I help? And you hear their story and you kind of walk through because you re remember that crisis state. They're stuck. They're young. They don't have the skills we have. And just to talk to them about, you know, maybe maybe you can focus tonight on getting a good night's sleep instead of staying up, like you told me, playing on your Xbox and such. Maybe that would help you feel a lot better tomorrow. Little things like that that are obvious to us, but we have to kind of walk through that process. There's literally one-page handouts that fill in teachers on the stress response at different developmental levels and tell them the right language to understand I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not been eating, I'm not been sleeping, I'm not doing the things that used to bring me joy. One-page handout. I'm going to provide a lot of resources as, as part of this podcast uh, to help with that. That's great. Thank you. And we'll put them on our website. So what are these nudges then? You've been hinting at them. The first kind of nudge, and one of the most crucial as a cry, even in the midst of a crisis unfolding, is our educational approaches. And in psychology, we call them psychoeducation. Basically, facts. You see this demonstrated by police departments that have their act together. Most have gotten really good in the midst of something unfolding. For instance, maybe there's been a bomb threat at school. You have parents upset. They're refreshing their Twitter feed nonstop, the school pay, their school website. They're, they're desperate for information over something that's distressed them. Something as simple as the school's official Twitter feed, putting out there three sentences that says, you may have heard that there was a bomb threat. Your students are safe. We will have an update in 10 minutes. That averts trauma. Because every minute that passes of an uncertainty where you feel that you're in danger increases the duration of the crisis experience when just having some facts helps bring things kind of back to reality of what we know. And most important in pushing out facts as fast as you can is that 
the rule of thumb, and, and this goes back 10 years, but I'm guessing this is no longer accurate. The timeline's even shorter now. If you don't get information out there within seven minutes, somebody will beat you to it. And what they'll push out is not accurate. And now they become the source of the information. And now you have to squash rumors. In every crisis situation, dozens of crisis situations I have helped with, the rumors that are floating around are always there. Young people especially, they've been getting news from texts and stuff going out and sensationalizing what uh, happened. Most of what they're sharing is not true. Most of what they're sharing is more disturbing and more scary than the reality. Therefore, their perceptions have worsened over the school, pushing out what you know is factual information as fast as you can. Instead of, unfortunately, the typical situation, which is where you pretend essentially like nothing happened and you share no information. I promise you, the students are talking about it in the hall. Unfortunately, they're doing it without adult guidance because we left them on their own to figure it out. We know how 12-year-olds work. They are not going to be entirely rational and accurate when they're sharing stuff on social media. So that seven-minute rule, I think, is even more compressed, and we need to just be aware of it. So we'll talk about some instances of psychoeducation, and I've got a fabulous teacher guide that gives you everything you need to help uh, get a handle on this. It's, a, it's lesson things, but that's the first step is just realizing getting in front of it and sharing what you know and telling them, at, you know, would you like to talk about it now that I've shared the facts? The students will then tell you all the rumors, and that gives you a chance to refute it. And it's the first time they've heard, oh, maybe that's not accurate. Um, in one model of crisis intervention, uh, the, the prepare curriculum uh, that we offer regularly in Poria State, those are called classroom meetings. It's simply a scripted thing. It's five or six sentences that says, I am so sorry to share. You may have already heard this. There was a car accident over the weekend. Fourth grader John Smith was badly hurt. He's in the hospital. Um, the family uh, has told us they'll update us uh, sometime tomorrow. This is all we know right now. We'll let you know more tomorrow. Just sharing that fixes so many problems and heads off uh, trauma in, in a lot of instances. Wow. So I remember when 9-11 happened and I was teaching in the classroom and I can still picture the students in the room when I learned about what had happened. And the district at the time that I was teaching at, they actually sent out an email. They told us over the intercom, teachers, please read your email. And the email said, do not discuss this with your students. So when the break came, the first thing the teachers did were we all sought whatever media, the TV or the news or wherever we could get our resources, and we are all discussing it. And I can't help but think, even all these years later, that so many of those students left our building to a changed world, and we gave them nothing to prepare for it. So I'm so glad to hear that the advice is to give facts and to share the information with our students. Yeah. And this is where it's really, it can be difficult to figure out how to handle things in our current climate because 
you know, as fast as research is done on what we know are tried and true approaches to this, as you might imagine, the main concern right now is the effect of social media. It is pretty common in even the worst instances you can imagine of terrible car accidents and deaths by suicide and so on, that students are out there. They're spreading rivers, even though they don't know the rivers. Some of what they're spreading are rivers by design because kids do thoughtless things and they don't realize how, not, how hurtful it is. And, uh, uh, and they take pictures. Oh my. They go to the intersection, take pictures and start sending it around. They're, what they're doing is they're spreading trauma. Psychoeducation gets ahead of this by conveying to students, you know, these are the facts. If you're sharing anything else, this is hurtful. If you, uh, and even sharing something, for instance, because this happens every time. We know students are out there. They're taking pictures. They're, they're sharing stuff out there. We get a beat on this pretty quickly. Just sharing as part of that brief informational discussion. This is a five-minute discussion with your class. Just pushing out helpful hints like, I'm aware that some people may have some pictures that are disturbing. I want you to think about how hurtful and disrespectful it is right now for John's family that some of that's out there. And you will see most students right. suddenly going, oh my, and feeling ashamed. And that's all you're trying to do is help them understand the effects of it. Most students care. Most students want to be helpful. They don't know mm -hmm. what's helpful or not. That's those little, the little nudges that can change everything. I want to give you a dramatic example of this, the power of getting ahead of, of, uh, of rumors. I helped last year with a mass shooting event. I was a, a first responder as part of a mental health team. Dozens of people shot, life-altering injuries, many people killed. And I was there in the aftermath for about a week meeting with people who had been affected by it, most of them had seen what happened. Since I was one of the few people who had a lot of experience with kids, I was mostly working with kids who had been at this in this situation and, and saw people die. Every young person told me the same story when I was just asking, you know, tell me your story, tell me your experience, because I, I didn't know what they had seen and how it affected them. And everybody described the same thing, that they were afraid. They knew they didn't catch the guy. This person was caught a day later, <laughs> by the way. This was all over the, the person was caught a day later. There was one shooter. He was caught. He was in prison. I was talking to kids a week later. Every single person I met with, 48 <laughs> during that week, every single person I met with in these little problem-solving sessions told me, they hadn't been leaving the house. Their parents weren't letting them leave. They used to go out and hang out in the park. They would play soccer with their friends. This is how they took care of themselves. These are the things that bring them joy. These are the things that connect you. These are the things that keep you healthy. They'd stopped all of it. And the reason they weren't doing this is they knew the guy got away. And, and what happened is the person initially got away, they put on a disguise, 
and they escaped through the crowd and they put on a dress. And so then the kids are saying, you know, I went for a walk. Oh my. This is how eight-year-olds work. This is how 12-year-olds work. I saw somebody that looked kind of funny wearing a dress. I knew it was the guy. We went to the park, one, one group of kids. So I met with each of them individually. One group told me, oh. we went to the park to play soccer the next day. We could see this person walking in a distance. It sure looked like it was him. He got away. As long as you don't feel safe, the crisis isn't over. They thought they were in danger. And so they had cut off themselves from the things that brought them joy and would have restored equilibrium, let them get out energy, stay connected to people. Stopping the rumor with the facts is one of the most powerful things I could do to say, oh no, he was caught the next day. He's in prison right now. But until you hear the person's story, you don't know what they're responding to. Trust me when I say most of the things that they are concerned about that are distressing them when it comes to the crisis event involve things that are not actually true. It's all rumors. It's all social media, kids. Uh, I read fairly recently, I think it's like the average 12-year-old, three to four hours a day, they're on their phone on social media, right? Guess what they're focused on in social media in the aftermath of a crisis? They're, they're going down a rabbit hole like everybody else does. And the things that draw their attention are the thing, the things go viral, aren't the boring old facts. It's the exciting stuff that's dramatic and uh, unusually light. Wow. We had a situation in our school where we actually had a false alarm and we went into a lockdown and police were called to the school and did the search. And at the time that it was happening in the classroom, we did not know it was a false alarm, right? So we were all acting as if it were real. And it was actually reassuring when I got to meet with my students when the event was done. And I, w- and I learned that it was a false alarm. And I was able to share that fact with them. And I even quoted our previous podcast where we've met with you and we've shared the data. And I, you, I know you have said our schools are safe. The data shows that our schools are a safe place. And um, it felt good to be able to quote that fact in general and explain that it was a false alarm. I just, knowing everyone's emotions were high, I can only imagine how people are dealing with it when it isn't a false alarm. Yeah, and especially with, how much the the frequency with which as a country we have terrible things happen in schools and we have shootings and a lot you know a lot of other things that's a steady drip 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 in in the news it gives an impression to any individual student that people aren't safe in the school in the same way that when there are say four shark attacks during summer People are afraid to go swimming for shark attacks during all of summer is pretty minor and means that generally you're very, very safe going swimming, but that's no longer the perception. Very true. Are there any other nudges that we need to know about? Tubal can give teachers a lot of power to help set things right. The importance of returning to normalcy as quickly as possible. You have to understand, think about the crisis state. Crises make us feel out of control. 
So imagine a student or a group of students who are distressed about an event. And now, for instance, maybe they're not doing well, they're not sleeping well, they maybe don't feel safe, maybe they're not, they haven't come to school in three days, which is very common after something has happened. Let's say a, a, a car accident uh, on the student that's badly hurt or, or dies. So you imagine students in that state. Here's what the research says, surprisingly to a lot of people. There are two kinds of parents, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about students who have experienced a school shooting. They, have, they were survivors of a school shooting. So I'm talking the worst of circumstances. Here's what research on those youth has said when it comes to who is able to handle it well afterwards and who isn't. As you might imagine, there are a lot of teachers, a lot of parents who adopt in the interest of being caring and compassionate, adopt, let's say, a laissez-faire, if I'm pronouncing that right, attitude of saying, of course, you don't have to go to school today. After something like that, I can't imagine you'd want to go to school today. No, you don't have to go to bed at 9.30, even though we've always gone to bed at 9.30. I can only imagine what you're dealing with. You don't have to go to bed then. You just... You take care of yourself and you do what you think's right. Oh. And the kid's up all night playing the Xbox. People routinely do that and say, you know, this is what I can do to help us to try to be very kind and understanding and give them some space. You know who fares better than that? Parents who are authoritarian when that happens. Parents who say, you know, you're really struggling with things right now and you know the lights are off at nine and your phone is down. I'm taking your phone. Good night. Those kids come through it okay. And you know why? Those kids are emotionally dysregulated. The last thing you want to do is leave them on their own to make decisions about what is best for them. They need guardrails. They need certainty. They need predictability. The parent who says, you are coming to school. I know you're going to be struggling today, but this is best for you to be around people who care about you and be with your friends today, not at home, and you bring them to school. That doesn't mean we're not compassionate. It doesn't mean that you don't appreciate the students are gonna be very focused for a couple of days. I'm not going to even raise the issue maybe as a teacher that they didn't turn in their homework. You know, I'm not overly worried about it. I'm just happy they're there. I'm just happy that they're in a situation where they see that life is moving on, there's stability. There's structure, there's predictability. Those things bring comfort. Those things are necessary and prerequisite for me as a young person to, to get a grip on my own emotions and start returning to normalcy. When we leave kids to their own devices in the interest of being compassionate, we're undermining that. They're not ready for that right now. So I'm not saying teachers should become overly strict, but I'm saying teachers say, you know, I, we do, we have our rules and we're going to follow those rules right now. Let me remind you of those rules. Wallowing in it yeah. isn't necessarily productive. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? That's yes. That's absolutely part of it. What, what are kids going to do at home? Nothing productive, nothing that makes them feel better. And you think about the things that keep us healthy, resilience, protective factors, as they're called, very consistently say. Continue with the social support. Continue with the relationships that have always kept you healthy. Be with your teacher who cares for you. 
be with your friends who care for you. Do the things, get back to the things, be in the situations that have always been stabilizing and healthy for you. If you have always gone to basketball practice, you go to basketball practice. Honestly, you might sit there on the bench because you're not really feeling it right now. That's okay. I'm and the teacher just says, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. Think how much better that is than saying, you don't have to be at school this week. That's one of the biggest danger signals, in, in fact, that I encourage teachers to think about. Something bad has happened and a student who's always in school has stopped coming to school. There's your chance to give a nudge. Talk to the parents and say, and fill them in on this. Returning to normalcy is better for them than anything else they can do right now. A lot of parents will not understand that. But hearing it, parents will think about it and realize, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, it does. We, we need to get in there. So you mentioned there was another nudge. The last nudge, really, the teachers uh, are can, can really help with. This is one of the this is the most advanced of the psychoeducational approaches. What's called a psychoed a psychoeducation group. Sorry, I go back to psychology illegal. A psychoeducational group. What it is is a classroom meeting on steroids. Here's how it works. Classroom meeting is just giving the facts, dispelling the rumors, done. That takes care of most of the needs. That takes care of a vast majority in the aftermath of even pretty awful things of all people need is to go, okay, I understand the facts of it. I already have been a, fair, a, a healthy person. I am close to my family. They care for me. This is all I need is just social support, knowing the facts. We move on. Most kids, human beings in general, we're astoundingly resilient. We really are, even in the aftermath of the worst things, when we rely on each other and know people care for us. It's the biggest protective factor. When it's said and done, there can be a subset of students who need more. And I'll give you a good example. Think about the student, let's say, who died in the car crash over the weekend. And for instance, a fourth grade class, the student John. All the students will be somewhat affected. They're, they're not used to this. It overwhelms them. They don't know what to make of it. They're trying to process it. You're sharing the facts. You're validating the feeling that they're having. You're struggling. You're kind of stopped now. We're here. 80% of the students, that's all they need to eat to hear. They're back at school. They're moving on. They'll be fine. They don't need anything else. But as you'd imagine, John has friends. John has people who are close to them. Some of them may need direct services. You've got your school counselors and psychologists and social workers that can help. But probably you'll end up with a subset of students, let's call it six or seven students. They need a little more. This is what a psychoed group represents. I'm going to provide for you the best crisis resource I have seen published in the last five or six years. It is a student psychoeducational group booklet put out by National Association of School Psychologists. And it sounds intimidating, but here's what it is. Lesson plans. It's four developmentally differentiated lesson plans. It's written for teachers, lower elementary, upper elementary, middle and high school. That basically says, oh, this happened to a middle school class. It's affected a group of students. 
what do I do as a teacher? You open it up, there's a three-page lesson plan written by people who know how to write lesson plans. You study it for 10 minutes and then you teach. And the gist of what you're doing is you have a classroom meeting. You say, here is the update on what we know happened. You dispel the rumors. And then you say, let's talk about how this might have affected you. And you acknowledge the ways that you can predict they are struggling. There's a script you'll have. It will say, you can predict, for instance, if it's a group of eight-year-olds, this is what they're going to say. Because human stress response is very predictable. They aren't sleeping, their eating has changed, they're having nightmares, they're no longer doing activities, social activities with friends or family that used to keep them healthy. This is pretty much what you're going to hear. They're not focused, they stop turning in homework. That's kind of, in a nutshell, what it's going to say. You're going to share with students, these are some things that you might be feeling right now. You're going to convey a message and that this is normal. The power of them hearing what I'm experiencing is normal. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not going crazy. You get it. Everybody else there gets it. That's the healing power of a group and acknowledging that the traumatic situation and that people are struggling is that everybody kind of recognizes that we're struggling with this stuff. And then you enter the teaching mode. You say, here's what you do. Keeping in mind, these people feel helpless. You say, okay, when you find yourself struggling to sleep, here's two things you can do to feel better. One of them is called a breathing technique, let's say. I'm going to teach you how to do it. Let's practice it. You teach them the coping skill that adults may have to deal with a tough situation like that that these young people don't have. You teach it directly. The lesson plan gives you the technique, tells you how to teach it, has an accountability step. This is crucial. By the time the lesson wraps up, every student has filled out a, a worksheet that is in the guide that all I, I will provide. You have a discussion with the students. They share the ways that essentially they'll take care of themselves and take care of each other that lets them get through this. And then any student who hasn't convinced you that they have mastered the lesson, you should worry about them and you refer them for additional help because now it's past a classroom teacher. So you're triaging and you're making sure people are getting the services they need. But for most students in the worst circumstances that you can imagine, what I just described that a teacher would run, it's a 45 minute lesson. This is what they need to connect to their peers, realize they're not alone, realize the effect on their body doesn't mean they're crazy. And here's what to do about the stress response that has you, your hands shaking and you're not eating and you are have a bad temper and you snapped at your friends when everybody realizes this is a normal response to something awful that happened. And here's how you heal yourself when you're feeling this way. You are, and this is called the empowerment state. You give them control back. You empower them to say, I know what to do when I feel this way and I'm on my own tonight. And in fact, there's been homework they can take. That's it. 
not difficult. Lesson plans are laid out. The concepts are tried and true. And uh, again, to reiterate, these contribute good mental health outcomes, psychological well-being. Doesn't take, you don't need the school psychologist running this training. You don't need the social worker running this training. Teachers, in fact, are the best person to run it because you're familiar. You're part of routine. They care for you. They trust you. Right. That's awesome. I can see that this would be extremely valuable in a in a severe crisis situation. Could you use something similar to this lesson plan and this strategy for something that, oh, how do I put this? As adults, we don't necessarily think that it's a big deal, but middle school students sometimes perceive a drama. Mm-hmm. We, that's what we call it. We call it student mm-hmm. drama, bullying or being mean to one another in just general day-to-day classroom interrupts the classroom learning environment. So in that way, it is kind of a crisis, but it's nothing to the level of a death or um, someone being physically hurt. Yeah. Can you still use this kind of lesson plan in that kind of situation? 100% yes. And that is a recognition that the interventions I described that are in the power of teachers to enact, they apply to any crisis event. The same thing that you would do if a child is distressed and it turns out they heard their parents fighting and they're worried about them divorcing, for instance, the same thing you might do to help keep that child healthy is the same thing you would do if they witnessed uh, somebody being run over in, in the crosswalk after school. It's the same process. It works. You can trust it. It's hard to screw it up. You have to have confidence in knowing that doing something is better than nothing. And for people who feel overwhelmed, just uh, us emotionally in thinking about the things our students are struggling, it can make us kind of overwhelmed emotionally in, in trying to deal with this. The magic words I want you to remember, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, is... Caring attachment. Powerful research going back to Harvard in the 80s, famous in crisis literature that basically says the healing power of most of this comes from people in crisis knowing other people are there, other people are trying to help other people care for them. If nothing else, if you take steps to demonstrate to a student you care, you are halfway there. Awesome. So we are running out of time. Do you have anything else that you really want to make sure that teachers hear? I love the idea of some structured lesson plans. If you provide those to us, we will definitely put those on our website so teachers can reference them. I want to leave you with this that I have a lot of experience specifically in Kansas schools trying to to help with these situations. The main thing I have seen is that when crises happen, people generally don't do anything. And when I talk to folks afterwards, even in really bad circumstances, for instance, involving student deaths, when we talk afterwards about 
what they did and what they could do differently next time, everybody says the same thing. They care deeply, but we didn't know what to do, so we didn't do anything at all. And just appreciating, you can't screw it up. If you care and let people know you care, you're already helping them heal. Everything else comes down to brief education that teachers are best at to say, here's what you can do to care for yourself when you're struggling with this. And you're really sharing your wisdom on what you do to de-stress because you maybe have a 20-year head start on the students and you just kind of fill them in on that. And that's where I'll provide some basic materials, but I promise you, they're single page fact sheets that help you know, here's how four-year-olds demonstrate stress. Here is how here is how high school seniors demonstrate stress. It all is really the same. And it's then you helping recognize there's three or four little things they could do to feel better that most adults naturally do. We naturally do grounding techniques, focus, try to stay rational and talk it through, try to connect and be closer and rely on family and lean on each other a little bit now, talk to a friend. That's all the students need too. They just don't know it. And they need adults who care and tell them, we're going to get back on track. We're going to return to normal. Things will be better. It'll take a few days. And to appreciate that in the worst of circumstances, the research is very clear. The vast majority of people in the worst circumstances that you can think of are fine one week later. Things will seem awful for two or three days because you're in the midst of all this adrenaline and you're not sleeping and eating. Within a week for almost all students in the worst of circumstances, they're fine. They're on the road to healing or they're already back to uh, baseline. The remaining students, in fact, after a week, if they haven't gotten better or things are getting worse, it, it's a mental health referral at that point. So it's not rocket science. We make a big difference in, in that one week span. After that, students struggling at the same level, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we've done what we can. We continue to care. And we've got a school counselor, for instance, kind of helping at that point. This is wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing the resources. Thank you so much. I feel a lot more hope that I have a plan of something I can do uh, next time we do have a crisis at school. So thank you for your time. I appreciate very much that you've joined us today. My pleasure. I do encourage folks who find themselves in a situation and they're feeling a little stuck, please please email me. I am happy to help provide resources. And it's not uncommon that I, uh, I'm invited to districts to, to uh, help, help people, help teachers give a, give a little nudge. So, so please, please let me help if I can. And thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and will subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by the Teachers College at Emporia State University, featuring talks with experts and educators, addressing topics that can help you as an educator, a parent, and a person. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. You can get more information provided by our guests on our website, www.emporia.edu slash hwtt. 
We would appreciate it if you could help us spread the word about the podcast. You can follow us and share on Twitter with at HWTT underscore ESU. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for How We Teach This. If you would like to be a guest on our show or are willing to give us some feedback, please send us an email at hwtt at emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, the executive producer. You've been listening to How We Teach This. Thank you.